1: Maddie, are we ready? And do we have these phone callers lined up for the George Shire experience?
0: We do. Let me uh, go to uh, Jonathan's uh, text here. He's texting me a list of uh, guys. We all have, right, John. We have uh, Sean in Brooklyn Park.
1: Sean in Brooklyn Park. What, uh, what do you have for George?
2: Hello, Patrick. Hello, George. Hello. How are you doing?
1: We're good. We're good.
2: Good, good. See, um... Wondering, do you remember an uh, um, AWA wrestler by the name of Paul Diamond?
1: Yes, I do. And what would you like to know, just what his career was here?
2: Well, it, we, um, as a family, we got a, we got a dog, and we named our dog after Paul Diamond. We named him <laughs> P D. Okay. And uh, the story we got was that he died in a plane crash. Is that true?
1: Alright, we, uh, we will update you on Paul Diamond Thank you, Sean
3: Actually, there were two Paul Diamonds in the AWA Strangely enough, there was a Paul Diamond who used the name in the late 60s around the West Coast and here in the AWA it was around 1969-70 In fact, that original Paul Diamond was actually one of the guys that was unmasking Dr. X in some of the cities So they had a huge main event He also had a good run against Jack Lanza. The other Paul Diamond. Paul Diamond, a guy with that name, had to be a good guy, right? Well, he was a good guy. And he actually took the name Paul Diamond because uh, if fans remember a TV show from the 60s, uh, early 60s, it was uh, Roy Diamond, Private Detective. And he liked that name, so he took the name Paul Diamond. But there was another Paul Diamond that came into the AWA in the 80s. And it wasn't the same guy. It was kind of weird because I personally never understood why they used the same name for a wrestler with no explanation that it wasn't the same guy. But it, there, was, there were two of them. And the other Paul Diamond went on to uh, wrestle for a while here in the AWA. In fact, he even teamed with uh, Greg Gagne for a while uh, in the, the mid-80s uh, for tag team championship honors. They didn't win, but they were a team for a short time. So there were two of them.
1: And you don't know what his fate was as far as a plane
3: crash. Well, they didn't die in a plane crash. Neither one did. Okay. Neither one did. So both are deceased. No, wait. Paul Diamond, the original, is deceased. I'm not sure about the other one. Okay.
1: All right. He cannot be stopped. Uh, Who we got now? Bart in Cannon Falls. Bart. Yeah. Hi, uh, George and Patrick.
2: I have a question about the Clawmaster. Okay. Um my niece who grew up in Prior Lake, she uh was born in nineteen eighty, so in the early nineties she was in high school and she told me that
4: she had uh the clawmaster as a substitute art teacher. <laughs> uh,
3: Did you believe her? Uh,
4: well, I have no reason not to believe her. Okay.
3: Well, she was probably but, telling you the truth. Uh, yeah. Jim Raschke, who was a pro wrestler trained by Vern Gagne, he had a very short career as Jim Raschke from Nebraska, but he had a great amateur basketball background, and he came up with the gimmick along with Mad Dog Vachon to become a German, which he was, some German in his heritage, but he became Baron von Raschke, the hated clawmaster. Yeah. But on the sidelines, he did have a teaching degree, and he was a substitute teacher at various wow. times during his career. And so it's quite possible that, um, he, and he also, by that time in 1980, he was nearing, is, you know, getting was, close to the end of his career, and he, he, he did substitute teach. Yeah, All right, sir, been thank in what
1: early, early 90s. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that would have worked. Yeah, uh, that would have worked. My uh, youngest son went to uh, school, uh, What was in the same grade at Prior Lake as his daughter, uh, the, the baron. He lived out there for quite some time. And I, I think uh, Kent Herbrick was an expert at the claw when he got a couple of beers in <laughs> the, uh, back in the day. Uh, who do we have there? Kevin in Woodbury. Kevin, what's up? Oh, hi, guys. Uh, George, you mentioned earlier... You didn't want Greg Ganya to come over and put the sleeper on you. So it made me think. The Gagne sleeper was, you know, well-known closing hold for those guys. Um, some would call it a choke hold, like Nick Bakwinko.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Then Nick came up with an Oriental sleeper.
3: Were they actually different holds or different (laughs) moves? Did you ever experience either one of those? Well, I never experienced the sleeper hold, and I don't want to. (laughs) But um, actually, Vern Gagne, I will tell you, Vern Gagne did did put the sleeper on me one time in Waterloo, Iowa. Mm -hmm. And Baron Von Raschke was behind him about to put the claw on me. My wife snapped a picture of it and I will tell you my face is blue in the picture <laughs> and I, I told I told Vern, Okay, I believe you, it's real. Mm-hmm. But uh the 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 Oriental sleeper was pretty much a sleeper hold that with a fancy name that Nick had come up with back in the early eighties when he came back from Japan and, and pretty much to say, Okay, I got my own sleeper now too, Vern Ganya and there you go.
1: Okay, Vern was famous for it. Do you have any idea what the history of the sleeper hold is?
3: I don't know where the history starts on a lot of these holds, Patrick. Yeah. You know, some of the guys, you know, in that day, and it's, it's interesting because in the, in the old school wrestling uh, period, when a guy did have a sleeper hold or a figure four leg lock or whatever it was, that usually meant the end of the match. If you do compare it to the product that's out there today, and I'm not going to go into that product, but the WWE, but they, they, will, they will slam people through tables, throw them off of cages, slam them into, you know, you name it, and there is no finishing hold anymore. And, I mean, I don't know how these guys are believably supposed to walk away from what they're doing. So the finishing hold of old is no longer. But they were, they were needed in wrestling. You know, Vern Gagne, that was his pet hold. If you had Mad Dog Vashani, he'd give you the pile driver and supposedly injure your neck and put you out of action. And the Baron had the claw. Crusher had the bolo punch and a stomach claw. I mean, everybody had to have a hold.
1: Uh, uh, thank you, uh, George. Two things. Charlie Anderson, a friend of mine, uh, sends a tweet. In the mid-'60s, Bob Remus used to cut hair in a hole-in-the-wall shop in Glen Lake. He was a Hopkins lad as well, had a few cuts as a kid, done by the future Sergeant Slaughter himself. Is this accurate? Sure. It is. He was a hair cutter. Well, he he,
3: he did it for a short time.
1: Okay. And uh, I earlier today went up to the slide, uh, you know, the slide up here where they, has been here since I was a kid, where they slide down for about eight seconds on a mat, right? And I consider it the greatest profit item in the history of of the Minnesota economy, and uh, how do you get around that? A guy named Kevin Powers tweeted me, I used to bring my kids early, and they would get free rides to get the morning dew off the slide. Now, there's a cheap old Minnesotan right there to get his kids out here to slide early for free instead of paying. It's now two and a half bucks to slide down there, but if you've got to take a parent with the three-year-old or the four-year-old, They both pay. It's five. So uh, that's what I've always wanted to do, own the slide that's up here. uh, And it's been there since I first came to the Minnesota State Fair. We'll be back. This is uh, the Ride with Ricey, first day of the Minnesota State Fair. Boy, if you ever went to a trash man concert, you got sick of hearing bird, bird, birds." the word. I'll tell you that. George Shire is with us. Uh, We got Dave. Is that right, Dave? Gabe. Gabe, Gabe, what's up?
4: Uh, it's Kenny the Sidebuster ever lose a match.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, nah, he lost. Kenny J lost most of the time. He did win some matches and but usually against uh, you know, I'll tell you what. Kenny J holds the uh, the record for beating the former eight-time NWA world champion Harley Race in a match in Minneapolis back in 1965. He was teamed with the Crusher and Vern Gagne, and Harley uh, was pinned by Kenny Jay in the third and final fall. Kenny, his job was to lose, and he was a great, great guy. He was a great worker. He's a great friend. He's still with us. He's 82 years old and just a great guy, so... He was always entertaining. The very capable Kenny J. Yes,
1: and uh, I was there the night he went unbeaten. Uh, when he threw my brother, me, Frank Highland, and Mike Augustine out of the court bar, he went four and all that. I night. remember you told me <laughs> that story. <laughs> hey, my brother, miracle of miracles, will celebrate another birthday tomorrow. So, uh, God love my brother Michael. He is a. Uh, as he as he humbly called himself through the years, Mr. Wonderful uh, will have his uh, birthday tomorrow. All right, I'm trying to find my Twitter questions, but I I got a bunch of them, but I uh, can't uh, find them here. So we'll take another call. What do we have? Who who we got here?
0: We have uh, Joel in
1: Savage. Joel, what's up? Uh, Hello, George Joel.
2: Confirmation. Uh, Chief Wahoo McDaniel, I have
1: recollection of him winning his match and then being awarded by Wally Carbo a painting and you could see this coming from a hundred miles. His nemesis ran and grabbed the painting and busted over a turnbuckle. <laughs>
4: is that true?
3: It is very true. It happened in nineteen seventy three Wahoo McDaniel, of course, being a baby face good guy, he was presented with a portrait uh, painted allegedly by a fan of his. It was presented on TV at the Calhoun Beach Hotel. And you're right, you could see something like this coming. I mean, that was usually what happened when they made presentations on TV. It was luscious Lars Anderson and beautiful Buddy Wolf who took it upon themselves to smash the beautiful portrait. And they also <laughs> had an incident where they took one of his very popular headdresses and pulled all the feathers out of it. And so naturally, Wahoo wanted to get revenge, and you set up feuds that way. And Wolf and Hainimi had a long program against Wahoo and various partners in singles matches. Wahoo was one of the best entertaining good guys that of his era, and a very legit tough guy outside the ring. Ex-football player, played for the Oilers, uh, the Houston Oilers back in the day, and uh, the Jets, Damn. very, very good for, good football player before he turned to pro wrestling full-time
1: somewhere on my notifications here are all these question, all these uh questions for you george and uh i'm having a hard time finding them uh, do we have another caller there
0: we do we have bob in south st paul
1: bob what's up
0: hey oh, Pat, bob.
4: george yes sir. when i was growing up i remember watching a guy play football named gene anderson for the South St. Paul
3: Packers, and he went on to become a pro wrestler uh, in the mid-60s.
2: Whatever happened to Gene?
3: Gene Anderson was from South St. Paul, and he was the only real Anderson brother. He was trained for the pro ring in 1960, 59, and 60 by Vern Gagne, coincidentally. For the next five years, Gene Anderson worked uh, wrestling matches for Vern, wrestled for Vern in the AWA till about 1965-66. He helped Vern train a lot of guys in those camps we spoke of earlier. And Gene had trained, helped train a guy by the name of Larry Hyneme. and Larry Hyneme became Lars Anderson. Gene and Lars went down in the southern part of the country and became the Minnesota Wrecking Crew together. And then when Lars was ready to come back to Minneapolis, they had another Anderson brother added to the fold, and that was Al Rogowski, who wrestled here as The Rock. He also was trained by Vern. He became Ole Anderson, and he and Gene pretty much wrestled together for the next decade as the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, Lars Anderson, came back here. I had mentioned Larry Hynemi a minute ago with Buddy Wolf. That's the same guy, Lars Anderson.
1: All right, George, uh, Bill Felberg, how much practice or, uh, or how spontaneous was a Bach-Wickel and Henn- or Bockwinkle and Hennon when they did their interviews? And either this guy wants to know if they actually worked on their material.
3: You know, it's really different back in that era because the the wrestling matches on TV weren't as much fun as the interviews were. The guys usually had two or three minutes to get their match over, the bad guys and the good guys. And unlike today's wrestling where they have long 20-minute scripts that they have to memorize, the the guys like Bobby Heenan and Nick Bockwinkle, you told them what town they were wrestling in, you told them who their opponent was, and they knew where they were in the program with the particular wrestler, and they went on and pretty much ad-libbed everything they did on their own. And, you know, the entertainment that Bobby Heenan brought us and Nick Bockwinkle and Larry Hennig All the bad guys had such great uh, gifts of gab. Jesse Ventura, you name them. But they didn't have a script. They just knew where they were supposed to be in the program, and they went out and did it and did a great job. Eric
1: Anderson, when Mr. Saito threw salt in Hulk Hogan's eyes and then crushed the huge trophy over his head... Why did Wally Carbo not hand down more stiff fines and suspensions,
3: asking for a friend? Well, if you if you have all those real suspensions, then you don't have wrestlers. <laughs> so the threat, the threat is better <laughs> yeah. that there will be fines and suspensions. And I'll tell you this, a lot of times when a guy was suspended, uh, it would be because he's moving on to another territory for a short time, or he might be Take leaving for Japan for a little bit, or... You know, uh, he he maybe legitimately has some injury that he needs to work through for a month or two. So why not work the suspension and have uh, when he comes back, you've got a ready-made feud with whoever they're going to wrestle.
1: Did anyone ever uh, be a sportsman and accept his uh, suspension as well deserved, or did they all feel that they were? Well, of course uh, not. <laughs> the bad
3: guys, the bad guys were always, you know, always being. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Picked on, so to speak, Wally yes. he, he Carbo was, you know, delivering fines and suspensions that were unjust. He was
1: playing favorites.
3: That was all, yeah, <laughs> it was all part of, but you know, Marty was a great, uh, great interview too, because he would stumble through his, his interviews, but he did it so well, and he was always going to suspend someone or fine them, you know, mm-hmm. the heaviest fine in the history of the AWA. <laughs> was all beautiful. Yes,
0: Uh, Pat, we've got got somebody waiting at the microphone. Yes, uh, I was going to
3: just uh, go
1: there. What's your name, sir?
3: Troy from St. Bonifaceus. Okay, Okay.
1: Troy, uh, what do you have for George?
3: I wanted to ask about Adrian Adonis. When I started watching AWA as a kid in like the mid-late 70s, you know, if you start watching cold, you have no clue who the good guys and the bad guys are. And I really took to uh, the East-West
1: connection, Adrian Adonis and Jesse Ventura. You know, I thought Greg Kanye was kind of a whiner
3: at the time, and I suppose you're predisposed to hate the boss's kid. But Mm -hmm. um, they were like the top heel team for a long time, and then Adrian just kind of disappeared, and he showed up years later, a much larger version of himself, and I wondered what happened there. Adrian Adonis started his wrestling career under his real name was Keith Frank, and he wrestled some of the territories up in Canada. That sort of, you know, he was up at Stu Hart's... uh, Calgary dungeon that he used to train wrestlers at Stu Hart was Brett the Hitman Hart's dad. If that helps you, Adrian was a very good technical worker. He 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 was the wrestler on the Jesse Adrian team. Jesse was not much of a wrestler. He was a performer. He was a character that you know his side of it drew in. So him and Adrian were a natural team because Adrian could take the bumps and do the do the wrestling, and Jesse could do the talking and the posing. And together, it was a great combination. He later went on to the WWE, Adrian did. And towards the end of his career, um, I don't know whether he was talked into it or something he came up with, but he came up with this adorable Adrian Adonis. It was more of a feminine character. He dyed his (laughs) hair blonde, put on an excessive amount of weight, really was a shell of his former self. But it was again, it was a character for a while. Um, sadly, uh, Adrian left us uh, 30 years ago already this year. He was in a car accident along with a couple of other wrestlers, one being uh, one of the Kelly twins. Mike and Pat Kelly were in the car. Pat Kelly was killed. They were both wrestlers. And another guy, uh, Dave McKigney, who wrestled as the Bear Man, and they were in Canada, had an accident. Adrian and Adrian Bearman and Pat Kelly were killed
1: yeah uh, you know we were always reminded george when that humboldt hockey team had the crash last year and all those kids uh died when they were driving across the uh hinterlands of canada think of all the late nights these uh wrestlers were driving six to a car uh, across uh, various two-lane roads in minnesota and everywhere
3: else it's uh
1: Funny there wasn't, uh, not funny, it's uh, it's unusual more accidents. there weren't more
3: accidents. One time, one time, many, many, many years ago, I had a very brief talk with Dr. Bill Miller, who was a wrestler for many years, and he said... He wore a mask. He wore a mask here as Mr. M in the yes, early 60s. I didn't like him, I thought he was a bad guy. Well, he, he did his job then. <laughs> but he, he told me one time that the... the the opponent he, he fears the most is the road. Yeah. Because, as you said, they would travel in those days, they would travel three, four, 500 miles, 600 miles to go from this town to that town. And they were doing excessive amounts of speed at times. And there were a lot of wrestlers that lost their lives. Um, you go back to 1971 in July when uh, Red Bastine. And Hercules Cortez were driving back from Winnipeg on the 23rd of July in 1971, and they were coming back from wrestling in Winnipeg to wrestle in Minneapolis on the 24th the next night. Hercules fell asleep at the wheel, car crashed, he was killed. And that night in Minneapolis, of course, he was signed to be in the main event against Nick Bockwinkle, and the card must go on, so Vern Gagne took his place. But that was tragic. And Red Bastine told me after that accident, Red had fallen onto the floor in the front seat of the car and injured his leg, but he was okay. He said that nothing ever shook him up more than the fear of driving in these cars to begin with, and then actually losing, you know, his partner's life that night. Uh, Leaping Larry Shane was another one that local fans may remember from the '60s. He was speeding here from Detroit, Michigan, to get to a match in Minneapolis strangely enough he went off the road he was traveling at a high rate of speed and when they found his found his body they found on the front seat of his car a speeding ticket he had received hours before
1: okay all right george yeah that's uh, i mean the risk of doing that is unbelievable and the, that whole canadian the humboldt uh, c- hockey team really uh, yep. brought that uh, to uh, the attention of all of us we'll be back this is a ride with ricey at the minnesota state fair the george Shire Experience.
4: Join us for Hubbard Broadcasting Day at the Minnesota State Fair. Hubbard will be taking over Dan Patch Park Saturday, August 25th, and 1500 ESPN will be on the stage from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Judd and Matthew Collar kick it off with a live edition of Saturday Sports Talk. Afterwards, Phil Mackey takes the stage with Jumpin' Jim Brunzel, noon to 1 p.m., and then a live edition of the Beer Show with Ro- with Reavers and Frataloni rounds out the day. More details at 1500 ESPN, and the Minnesota United are in Kansas City to take on Sporting KC this Saturday night. Tune in at 7 p.m. for the pre-match show with Brian Pyatt, followed by kickoff at 7.30 p.m. with Dan Terrar. Catch all the action right here on 1500 ESPN.
1: We have a caller here at the microphone. What's your name, sir?
3: My name is uh, Tim from Robbinsdale.
1: Tim from Robbinsdale. Uh, what's your question for George? The question is: Is back in, I, I was a kid in, living in Robbinsdale back in the mid-60s, and a guy moved into our neighborhood who supposedly was a professional wrestler, and all the kids in the neighborhood got together and helped him carry his weight set down <laughs> in the basement. <laughs> And later on, we found out uh, that uh, his name uh, was Professor Druck. Uh, can you tell me anything about him? Was he a wrestler? I know he. Was, I thought he was a manager of other wrestlers, but can you say, uh, tell us anything about him?
3: Steve Druck, Professor Steve Druck. He was a wrestler in the '60s. Uh, he he wrestled for Vern, pretty much in preliminary matches as Steve Druck, but about 1965. They came up with the professor gimmick. He had a derby hat that <laughs> allegedly was filled with lead, uh-huh. and he was he was the manager for Chris Markoff in the '60s. Okay. They had a good uh, good program for a while against the Crusher. That was his really only big run here in the Twin Cities. But he was usually a didn't, a preliminary guy. Didn't
1: we just lose him? Didn't he? No,
3: truck yeah. is still Druck with us. us. Yep. Okay, Druck good. Is still with us. By the
1: way, if they were gonna. Uh, Erect a Minnesota Wrestling Hall of Fame. It would be in Robbinsdale. Oh, I agree. I mean, that's where. uh, So that either they grew up there, uh, like Vern, or they, uh, you know, or they settled there or something like that. I mean, they, the uh, Robbinsdale had uh, a uh, tremendous uh, collection of players. All right, this guy has a question that can't be answered. Who was the old guy who always had the best seat in the front row at the Calhoun Beach Manor TV tapings? That cannot be asked, but uh, this guy said there was one guy there that had the best seat every week when they had the matches.
3: Well, there was a guy at the TV studio by the name of Degidio, Nick Degidio. Okay. He was a regular at the TV studio, but the guy that everybody would remember at the front row in the middle of ringside at the auditoriums, his first name was Frank I don't recall what his last name was. He was just a fan. But he, and he was very old at the time, Yes. he really, really took wrestling to heart. And <laughs> yes, he would yes. be in the faces of uh, the bad guys. And you would see him standing up and you'd remember him because he was always giving like somebody, somebody the, the, the middle figure. finger yes, at, right. <laughs> at every match and telling the referee that he was bought off and, <laughs> and trying to bring whatever debacle that happened to the attention of the referee. <laughs>
1: Uh, Did Vern not giving uh, This is from Howard Bornstein Did Vern not giving Hulk Hogan the title and, uh, uh, And giving it to Nick Bockwinkle The beginning of the end for the AWA
3: It depends on who you talk to Pat You know it was a very volatile Period of time Hulk Hogan was obviously A huge draw for Vern Gagne In the very early 80's Up until about 83 There was no doubt that he had many matches With champion Nick Bockwinkle There were many times when fans left the arena thinking that Hulk may have won. The bottom line is Vern didn't enjoy putting titles on non-wrestlers. That was part of it. The other side of it is, is that Hogan was a great attraction without a title. He didn't need the belt to draw people. And he made a better challenger. What happened, though, at that point was Hogan had issues, went to the WWF. And he gave uh, they gave him the title right away, and the rest is history
1: well, uh, that's uh you know how long was Hulk how long did Vern have Hulk?
3: Hulk was here from about the end of seventy nine very early eighty until eighty uh, Christmas of eighty <laughs> three and you know Hulk Hogan left on some very shady terms. Uh, he had basically had a, a match set up with the AWA and he left uh, calling Greg. There was a telegram sent from Florida saying, I'm not coming in. That's the long story short. Uh, Vern thought that it was a prank being played on him by his friend, a wrestler promoter in in, uh, Florida by the name of Eddie Graham. And he ignored it at first. Hogan did not come in. And Greg had pleaded with him, you know, come in, fill your uh, commitments, and then move on if you're going to, and Hogan didn't do that. The long story short on that is that Vince McMahon, love him or hate him, the guy's a genius at marketing, we'll give him that. But he was paying Hulk Hogan to not appear Hmm. for Vern. There you go.
1: All right. Hey, uh, we got a call or two there, Manny?
0: Yes, uh, we do. We have Jim in Maplewood waiting on the line.
1: Jim, what's up?
0: Say hey, there used to be a guy downtown Saint Paul named Jim Melby,
2: and he owned some little newspaper or magazine that they sold
1: at uh the Saint Paul Arena. You know him or anything about him or where he's at now? He got the byline
3: on the uh on the wrestling program, didn't he? Uh he did. Uh fifty years ago this November coming up, I met Jim Melby. I was this will tell you how old I am. I was 17, Jim was 19. He was putting out a small little publication called Wrestling Results and he was working for Norman Keitzer who put out the Wrestling News magazine. Jim and I became the very, very best of friends and we traveled around to wrestling together, we worked on the magazine together. Jim was the editor of Wrestling News and the Wrestling Monthly magazine and Wrestling Review magazine And he was just the greatest guy in the world. Jim also taught me the uh, value of tracing wrestling history and getting it right. And I am sad to report that uh, back in 2007, in February, Jim passed away at the age of 57 uh, from diabetes. And to this day, I miss him. He's a great guy, but thanks for bringing him up.
1: I, and we have another caller there, Manny?
3: Yes, Irv in Maplewood.
1: Irv, Maplewood. Yes. Coming in, we're hearing from the Maplewood precinct.
4: Oh, that's where the, all the wrestlers live. Okay. But anyway, uh, I might have a stump for you, George. Okay. You ever hear the uh, Michael C- uh, Cohn Brothers movie with Michael Rappaport called The Naked Man?
3: Okay. I never saw it. What's the question?
4: Okay, it was filmed at the Minneapolis Auditorium. At least the wrestling part of it. Ken Potero was in it, and a bunch of other wrestlers. And uh, he, Michael Michael Rapaport was a dentist, and a, some things happened to him, and he turned into a super strong wrestler. Okay. And the naked what, what man year was, was, what year was this? he would have a uh, jumpsuit on with like heart, lungs, kidneys hanging off the outside. That's why he was called uh, the I naked know. man.
1: I, are you sure the Cone Brothers made this movie?
4: Yes. Yes. It, I it, never, it was, uh, I've seen it once on TV, um on one of the movie channels. I don't think it ever went to the movie, to the theaters, but, uh, it was kind of a stiff, but, um I was in it. I was an extra in it.
1: <laughs> okay. But there was but, no uh, wrestling angle there.
4: It was, it was filmed in the Minneapolis Auditorium with Ken Patera was in it, though, and about 10 other wrestlers, local wrestlers. Okay. But I'll it was set up just like it was back in the AWA day with, uh, the popcorn stand and, the Concession stand on the wrestling ring and everything. It
1: was pretty cool. Uh, the Cohen brothers probably don't want anybody to know about that one. Uh, this, uh, I just, I just looked it up, gentlemen.
0: <laughs> it's, uh, the Naked Man was released in 1998. It was written by Ethan Cohen, one of the Cohen brothers. Really?
1: 1998? Yeah. This guy's talking further back than that, though. That's... Ken Patera and those guys. Huh. Maybe that's the first time it was released or something. All right, I got one la- last question. I got another, not one last, but I got another question on Twitter uh uh one week jim mitchell is a f- is a face referee beating a baby face right referee okay. uh with one hand the next week the iron duke is a heel jabber with one hand and back and forth why would Vern, in all instances choose to break the uh break the stick here what one, one he was a one-handed ref and a one-handed wrestler
3: well, Jim Mitchell did not have that much of a wrestling career here in the AWA. He did wrestle for independent promotions. He did have the fans here at the fair can can see what I'm doing. He had a hand that was like this with no fingers and a thumb sticking out. Okay. And he had a black glove that he would wear on it. He called himself the Iron Duke.
1: Okay. He did
3: wrestle under that name. He, he he just didn't have that you know the the match that the guy is speaking of or matches they were they were very very in, limited infrequent. Uh, but he he was a referee for Vern and he did have that deformed hand.
1: Uh, Tim Lagarde, I was at an AWA card in Duluth in '82 or '83. An actual riot broke out when uh, an unruly uh, re- ringside fan got into it after when he grabbed uh, Greg Gagne's uh, leg. And and burned and Greg kicked him away, and all the wrestlers came out and fought in the stands. Uh, do you remember that? Uh...
3: You know, there were a lot of incidences over the years. We talked a little bit ago about the wrestlers hating the travel. Yeah. The other, the other thing they had to worry about is, you know, in that in that era, if you look at wrestling today, they've got barriers around the ring and they've got a yeah. lot tighter security. Back in that era, in an auditorium, there were no mats on the floor. There were no barriers around the ring. And, you know, the wrestlers, their job was to, the bad guys' job was to incite the fans' anger and frustration. And a lot of times they could go just a little bit too far, and the fans would take part in it. There were many wrestlers that received stabbings. They got burnt with lighters and cigarettes. uh Dr. Bill Miller, we mentioned him earlier. He got hit with a two-by-four that opened a a big gash in his head. I mean, they had to worry about the fans, and it happened from time to time.
1: All right, George Shire's with us. Uh, We'll be back for one more segment here on the Ride with Racey. Day one at the State Fair. Hey, tomorrow, Hondo the Magician will be here for the first hour, 4 to 5. Hondo will uh, give us some of his good stuff and also a few stories uh, including about the day I was there uh, When he was entertaining Muhammad Ali And Muhammad called him the devil Because he could not figure out the tricks uh, So Hondo the Magician tomorrow at 4 o'clock Out here on the uh, Platform We'll be back right. The beer show is coming up And some of the uh, guys who will be on it Are practicing over here uh, Next to us So uh, that's uh, that's good We even have a baby on the beer show today So that's good uh, George Shire is with us. Uh, what do we got for calls there, Manny Hill?
0: Uh, we got another uh, another caller, Larry in West St. Paul.
1: Larry, what is happening?
0: Good evening, gentlemen.
2: George, yes, where does sir? Jake the Milkman Milliman fit into this group of chiseled people?
3: Well, Jake Milliman today in today's world, he works. He's still working. He's I I don't know what age he is, but he's up 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 in the years. He's working the independent scene from really? time to time. He has a cult following, but he was working for Vern as an as a enhancement talent. We, we like to refer to them as, but he would usually lose, and there was a little thing going on in the 80s where Jesse Ventura took him as a partner because he said he didn't need a real wrestler for a partner. <laughs> so That
1: he, wasn't very kind to his partner.
3: Well, Jesse was taking on the fabulous ones okay. in, in a tag match. Now, who was that? That was Steve Kern and Stan Lane. Okay. They were good guys. And Jesse said he didn't need a partner, so he took Jake and he said, let's give Jake a break. That's where it started. And, and Jake the Milkman, he became kind of a cult figure.
1: Uh, George... The most popular non-Vern uh, Gagne in AWA history. I say the Crusher.
3: Oh, by all means. The Crusher was a, was a golden goose. Um, he drew well whenever Crusher was on a card and in a program with a wrestler. They had The attendance went up. There's no doubt about that. And the same was true for Vern Gagne. When Vern was on the card, attendance went up. Uh, Crusher would go on self self imposed vacations where he would be injured, and he would not be in the area for a while. And you could notice it at with it at the gate for in- mm-hmm. attendance. Very you, you, you popular. Very. Me, you told me
1: a while back that he would. You know, he just didn't want to do it twelve months a year. He'd take a month or two off.
3: Well, there there were times when he just took a vacation. Mm-hmm. And uh, a good example was nineteen sixty nine in August. Him and Bruiser were the tag team champions. Crusher took some time off, and so the story was is that he was injured by Mad Dog and Butcher Vashon. And Crusher was out until January of 70 when he came back with a vengeance to get revenge on the dog uh. and the butcher. And uh, there's a great uh, YouTube video out there. If you go to the Crusher versus Mad Dog Vashon, it's a studio match where the, the Mad Dog is bleeding profusely. And it's quite, the, quite vivid. So take a look at it.
1: And uh, was the Crusher at all an athlete? Was he, uh, or was he just the
3: brawler? Well, I think every wrestler was an athlete to a yeah. certain degree. They had to know but their Vern, He wasn't easy to wrestle with, like Greg Gagne. Well, he wasn't. He wasn't a Vern Gagne. Vern Gagne could wrestle. Or, or the, the Crusher Gagne. could, you know, a lot of things. I think Harley Race said it best one time against the Crusher and the Bruiser. Hen, Harley Ray said, with those two guys, you have to do everything for them in the ring." <laughs> and, and in a sense, it was an insult, but in a sense, it was true because the Crusher and the Bruiser were more brawlers and performers, and a lot of guys would have to carry them a little bit, but together they made great matches.
1: Uh, all right, we got another call there, Manny.
3: Yes, Patrick
0: in Roseville.
1: Patrick, what's up? Hello, Patrick.
0: Hey, hey George, I was wondering, whatever had become um, of...
1: Rock
3: and roll, zoom off. Um, We're just going to not. We're not even going to acknowledge that question. He's in prison, and we'll leave it at that. No. I really don't prefer to give him any time.
1: All right. Uh, we got another uh, call there.
3: Uh, looks
0: like the last caller we have. We've got here the is last call, Thomas in Minneapolis.
2: Hello, Thomas. George. Your uh, knowledge of wrestling is phenomenal.
3: <laughs> I don't be, know what I had for breakfast, though. That's the that's... can't be stumped. <laughs>
2: I uh, got steeped in wrestling early because my grandfather and Marty O'Neill were childhood friends, so we got to go to the matches down at the old auditorium. Okay. D- uh, Don, o- uh, Don Riley told me a story, so take it with a grain of salt, <laughs> that would know.
1: And a very small grain of salt, I might add.
2: Yes. About a time that they uh, had an exhibition match in somewheres in North Dakota, and they had uh, chartered a plane out there and the whole setup was some local farm boy of large size was to be the the on the last card, and they had coached uh, the farm boy on how, what was going to go down, and uh, it was going to be a good match, and then the wrestler would win. Well, somewhere towards the end there, the farm boy got angry and started throwing this wrestler around with his brute strength, and so the uh, wrestler had to put him down. And uh, according to Don, the, uh, the local... Uh, hometown people did not take this very well, and Don said it was kind of like that scene from Frankenstein when all of the townspeople were chasing him with pitchforks and hay rakes to the par- plane, and they barely got it off the ground ahead of those people.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a Don, Don Riley story right there.
3: That's a Don Riley story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. But, uh, hey, I love Don for his stories. Don was like my dear friend Darkstar. People used to always say, when do you know he's telling the truth? And I always say, who
3: cares? are great stories, you know. So that was uh, kind of the, the, the whole deal there. The thing, the thing we should point out about pro wrestlers is that the vast majority of them were able to take care of themselves in a situation if they needed to. The, the problem they had that occasion, you know, there were fans in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s that believed wrestling was real, and it was it was as real as you wanted it to be and if you believed there was no problem in it it was great the worst thing you could do is say that it was fake because it wasn't fake they got hurt they did get hurt legitimately and i always tell people that if you want to see anything that is fake look at a wrestler and like i could use guys like nick bockwinkel and red bastine and so many when they're in their twilight years and they have had their hips replaced, their shoulders replaced, their knees replaced, their, their ankles fused. And they will look at you and say, this happened because it was fake.
1: I did get a tweet, uh, George, uh, wondering why, and I think you answered this once before, how it was possible that Andre the Giant was never the heavyweight
3: champion of the AWA. Well, why would, you, why would you make him the champion when he's such a good draw? The mm-hmm. other side of it was is that Andre wasn't a wrestler that stayed in any territory right? more than a month or so. Uh, all of his bookings in the 70s and the 80s, the very early 80s, were handled by Vince McMahon Sr., Daddy Vince. And what Vince would do is he'd rent Andre out to the various promoters for, say, a month or six weeks They'd go around all the cities in the, in the AWA, using that as the example. Andre would usually be in the battle royals and that sort of thing, and then he'd be gone. So put a title on him, it didn't make sense. Books update
1: right now. We need the updates on all the books, starting with the original.
3: Well, the original book, if you're interested, it is available on Amazon.com or at any local bookstore, Barnes & Noble. It is Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling from Verne Gagne to the Road Warriors. It's a I say it's a great book. It's got a lot of it history in it. It is a great it. book. It's got a lot of history in it. And then the other books, the AWA record books are also available on amazon.com and if you pay attention soon you will see my tag team book also available there. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, because for me, the tag team book is the most fun book I've ever worked on. It's just that I procrastinated, and with life getting in the way, it isn't done as fast as I'd like it to
1: be. And have you submitted it to the editors of you, as of yet?
3: It's uh, submitted to the editors, and things are cool.
1: You said the biggest problem with the tag team book is as you went into it, you kept finding new
3: stuff and had to keep writing. Well, it, you know, I want it to be accurate. People that know me... They know that if I can't prove that it's factual, I won't print it. And so sometimes there's stuff that comes up, and I say, I've got to verify this, or I've got to change this, or I come up with new stuff.
1: I agree with you, George, unless it's a really good rumor,
3: then I might print that it. That so. might get <laughs>
1: uh Well, hey, this has been fantastic, the George Shire experience. Uh, now, uh, in the future, if there's ever a RICY podcast, and that's still up in the air, uh George Shire will be a regular guest, believe me. There's uh, uh Thanks uh, thanks for all your help the last few years here, George. I thank you, it's, it, I
3: thank you Pat. It's been and great.
1: I... Here's a guy ready for the Tower of Power concert at the uh, Leinenkugel stage. Go get him.
3: Thank you, Patrick. All right,
1: George, thank you. The George Shire experience tomorrow. Hondo the Magician and other guests here at the uh, State Fair. Uh, maybe we'll see you? some. Maybe some of you guys are... Constant fairgoers, and we'll see you again tomorrow.